Welcome to Tech Enabled. I'm your host, John Bailey, a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. In each episode, we feature a conversation with leaders from the tech and public policy communities to explore new issues and opportunities raised by emerging technologies. Our hope is that Tech Enabled will introduce you to new entrepreneurs, new thinking, and stimulate new ideas as we tackle the pressing challenges that lie ahead of us. Today's conversation features a new approach with tackling misinformation. NewsGuard was founded by award-winning journalist Stephen Brill and former Wall Street Journal publisher Gordon Krovitz. NewsGuard rates more than 7,500 news and information websites that account for about 95% of online engagement with news in the United States, Canada, and some countries over in Europe. Each site is evaluated by a team of trained journalists using nine criteria of journalistic practice. The result produces a real-time traffic light of sorts that gauges the news ratings and a detailed nutrition label of trustworthiness of each website. We discuss what led two journalists to become tech entrepreneurs, the nature of misinformation, and the idea behind empowering individuals to help evaluate the information they consume over the internet. And now, on to our conversation. Gordon, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. I just want to start at the beginning. So you're two well-respected, nationally respected journalists that are now have started a startup. So tell us that journey. Like what led to you starting NewsGuard? You know, John, four years ago when we started NewsGuard, we thought there might just be a problem with misinformation on the internet. And over the four years of NewsGuard, I think we have to confess, we haven't yet solved it. What we had observed, which is now so obvious, is that when people are thumbing through their Facebook feeds or they're looking at search results or a student is doing research for a term paper, it's become impossible to tell the difference between a generally trustworthy site and an untrustworthy site. So we thought that was a journalistic problem, not a technology problem. We identified nine basic criteria of journalistic practice. Does the site disclose who owns it? Do they have a corrections policy, for example? And we use those nine criteria to have rated all of the news and information sources that account for 98% of engagement in the US. Every site gets a point score from zero to 100. If any site looks like it's gonna fail one of our criteria, our analysts reach out for feedback from that site. So it's a very open and transparent, fully disclosed journalistic process. And consumers, regular news consumers, when they have access to our ratings, will see a red or green icon next to virtually every news article in their Facebook feed, in their Twitter feed, in a search result, et cetera. And that will tell them right away, this is a generally trustworthy site or not so trustworthy. And it gives people the tools they need to make up their own minds about what they want to trust and what they don't want to trust. And I guess the last thing I would say is just as a matter of the introduction, the digital platforms, particularly the social media companies, it's now so clear that they are geared to maximize ad revenue by maximizing engagement, regardless of the truth, fairness, reasonableness of what's posted or of what which publishers are being promoted by the algorithm, which groups are being promoted by the algorithm. And we think it's time for those platforms to do more to protect their users from the known harms, including misinformation. 
maybe we'll get into this, but you know, there are companies like Microsoft and others that are providing our tools and our tools are increasingly available in schools and universities, which we think is great. Um, but it is an enormous problem and one that I think people now recognize as being a threat, not just to news consumers who don't know quite what to believe, um, but also to our democracies. Yeah. And if you think about what Gordon just said about the platforms, here's the way I think about the internet and news. And that is right now, imagine if you walked into a library, um, you'd see books neatly arranged on shelves. You'd see magazines you know, neatly arranged according to subject matter. You could pick up the book, read the book jacket. You'd know something about the author. You'd know who the publisher is. And best of all, there's a librarian. And the librarian's going to tell you uh, something about the background of the author. You're reading something about the minimum wage. The librarian might say this author is, is liberal. And if you want to see the other side, you might want to look at this book from this conservative author. But there's a librarian who is, who is guiding you with some information about what you're about to read. Now, imagine if instead you walked into a library and there were just a trillion pieces of paper flying around in the air. And you pluck one out of the air. You don't know who's financing it. You don't know who wrote it. You have no idea what their credibility is. And that is your Facebook feed. That's your Twitter feed. That's your Google search. That's the internet. So what we set out to do was to make sense of that the way librarians do. Well, the first thing about librarians is they don't censor anything. They want to provide information, but they don't believe that the government or anybody else ought to be interfering in what people read. And we feel the same way. We censor nothing. We don't want people to use our ratings to block anything. We just want people to use our ratings to understand what they're reading. The principal challenge we have, we, we knew we had, is why is anyone going to trust us? How do they know we're not just a bunch of liberals or a bunch of conservatives or we favor old media or new media? So we set out, as Gordon mentioned, these nine criteria which are distinctly apolitical. There really isn't a, a liberal or conservative way to have a corrections policy that is candid and upfront and that indicates that the publisher, uh, that one of the publisher's standards is it wants to be transparent and it wants to be accountable and it cares about the mistakes it makes. So uh, the result, which infuriates a lot of people on the left and a lot of people on the right, is that you can look at our ratings and you can't tell whether we're red or blue because our ratings are green or red, regardless of red or blue. You both have set out a lot here and I, let, let's unpack this in a, a couple different pieces. But first, talk a little bit more about the nine criteria. Sure. Well, the first, uh, the criteria are weighted. The first one is, does the site repeatedly publish false news? Now, that's one where you might say, well, who's going to decide what's false news? Well, in, the, in that instance, as with everything with our criteria, you have to be really bad to fail. It's not a matter of saying, gee, I think the government is overdoing it on climate change and should cut back a little bit, or it's not that much of a threat. That's not you know, clearly indisputably false. What is clearly indisputably false is if you, is if you have a website and there are these websites 
that say that if you have cancer, if you buy this subscription to apricot pits, you can cancel your appointment with your oncologist because apricot pits will cure cancer. Or if you say that 9-11 was an inside job by the Bush administration, that we venture to say is clearly false. So that's the first one. Uh, the second one is, does it gather and present information responsibly? And that means, does it do it more often than not with named sources? Does it uh, publish with care? It may make mistakes, but if it makes mistakes, does it make mistakes in a way that, uh, that doesn't indicate that there's something really wrong with the system by which they publish with their processes? One of the other ones is, does it have a policy for transparently making corrections when they make a mistake? Um, another one is, does it disclose ownership? There's a high correlation between websites that don't disclose their ownership and websites that are hoaxes and frauds. So that um, I think I've named four of them. One of the others is, does it give you information about the background and the credentials of the author of whatever the content? is does it tell you not only who owns the site, but does it disclose any possible conflicts of interest? Just to give you an example, there's a whole network of sites that are financed by a liberal PAC that doesn't say it's financed by a liberal PAC. The PAC raised its money on the premise from donors that if we get out there and look like uh, this whole network of really credible local news sites, we can support uh, Democratic congressmen in swing states, um, in swing districts. Well, that is clearly a lack of disclosure. It's also not gathering and presenting news responsibly. Now, lest your listeners get too excited, there's also a network of those same sites on the conservative side, too. So that's the way we approach this. This is really specific standards. And we publish a nutrition label with each site that goes through in excruciating detail how we came up with the rating that we did, how we made the decision on the nine criteria. Now, there are four different entities in this country that rate the reliability and trustworthiness of news sites. There's Facebook, there's Google, uh, there's Twitter, and there's us. With the other three, whether you're the publisher of the Daily Signal or the New York Times or uh, you know, the Birmingham News, you have no idea what your rating is. You have no idea who did the rating. So if you found out the rating, you wanted to call up and complain, you wouldn't know who to call. And if you did get someone on the phone and say, well, how did I get that rating? They wouldn't tell you because they'd say, oh, it's an algorithm. And if you knew, you'd game our system. In our case, it's completely transparent. We call everybody for comment before we publish. Algorithms do not call for comment. And if you have a complaint, we'll publish the complaint. If you uh, make a change to get a higher rating, which more than 1,800 sites have done, we will change the rating because we want people, unlike an algorithm, we want people to game our system and get a better uh, a score. So you're, you're introducing an incredible, helpful layer of transparency for consumers as well as for producers for, for some of these sites. But talk a little bit more because you had mentioned that if I'm surfing on a website and I go to this one page, I get a green light or a red light. How do I get that? Like, what is the experience like for me on as a consumer? Sort of, how do I engage and get the the news guard sort of ratings? 
Yeah, so uh, there are a number of different providers that have licensed our ratings and make it available to their customers or patients or students. For example, um, anybody who uses Microsoft's Edge browser can access our browser extension at no cost. Oh, so Microsoft incorporated NewsGuard ratings into their browser. Yes, exactly. And so uh, you can get our browser extension on other browsers for a subscription fee on Edge. It's available for free. There's a search engine called Neva, N-E-E-V-A, that is trying to compete as a consumer-focused search engine rather than an advertiser-focused search engine. Um, They've integrated our ratings um, as well, so that if you're using Neva and you see search results that include news sites, that comes with our red or green icon and nutrition label. And there are a number of others. We have just recently the American Federation of Teachers, the second largest teachers union, acquired a license for all of its member teachers and their 20 million students in U.S. schools. And that's for our browser extension so the kids uh, can access NewsGuard as they do their as they do their research. Well, that's amazing because I know like, you know, teachers are constantly curating articles and other resources. So to have that, it's going to be, be so yeah. profound. By the way, the, um, the license with the AFT, I think, illustrates something that we said before about the apolitical nature of what we're doing. Some of your listeners, probably not many, uh, may recall that I wrote a famous article in the New Yorker called The Rubber Room about uh, what I consider to be the the abusive power that the teachers unions have. And and I also wrote a book about that. And uh, the head of of the AFT, Randy Weingarten, and I were, shall we say, on opposite sides of that issue, you know, strongly opposite sides of that issue. I think we both agree the teachers are underpaid, but we disagree on you know, some basic aspects of uh, the union's policies. However, when we had the conversation about this, what we agreed to was that this is that this issue of misinformation and disinformation is exactly the kind of problem where people who respectfully agree uh, disagree on policy matters really need to come together. There are websites that we've rated green that Randy Weingarten probably hates. And there are websites that we've rated green that she probably loves, and there are websites that we've rated red that she probably loves. But the issues that we're tackling here, we think, as is the case in many other arenas, transcend you know, disagreements on policy, even though those disagreements are strong and they're very important policies. Yes, completely well said. There's also, Gordon, you started with this, and Stephen, you just mentioned this, that this issue of misinformation can be a it could bring people together in many ways, particularly that are concerned about it. And so I just want to, I mean, you, you now have rated thousands of websites against this nine criteria. Love your reflections. Like, what have you learned about the nature of misinformation itself? Like, what, what creates misinformation and what is what leads to its viral spread? Like, what insights have you, you learned from? Yeah, so two points. The most shocking finding that we had once we had rated all of these news and informational websites, again, the ones that account for 98% of engagement in the US. And as Steve said earlier, you've got to be pretty bad to get a red rating from us. Two data points, 40% 
of all of those websites in the US get a red rating from us. Another data point, by far the biggest category, healthcare hoax sites. So even before COVID, you may remember measles had returned. There were there are now thousands of websites that spread misinformation about COVID, about the vaccines, about treatments, and about other uh, illnesses as well. It's a big business. The other data point that we point to the money is is the number two point six billion. There's two point six billion dollars a year unintentionally going and advertising to misinformation sites, including healthcare hoax sites. This is in the nature of programmatic advertising. So all the advertising in the world, half of it is digital. And of that half that's digital, half is programmatic, meaning placed by computers. The advertisers don't know where the ads end up. They're ending up on Russian disinformation sites like RT and Sputnik. Chinese disinformation sites, crazy healthcare sites. And they're being placed there by every blue chip company you can think of. The CDC itself advertised on websites promoting healthcare hoaxes, not intentionally, but that's just where the computer put the ad. Just because the mechanism they use to place the ads places them automatically or feeds, feeds the ads into these sites. Exactly. And until now, you know, 25 years into the internet, there wasn't really a way for advertisers or ad agencies to protect themselves. There wasn't a list of, here are the sites you really don't want to be on, and here's some, some high-quality sites you do want to be on. So we have a product for advertisers that uh, gives them a list of sites where they really don't want to advertise, an exclusion list. And just as importantly, we have a list of thousands and thousands of high-quality local news sites site serving the Black, Hispanic, Asian, LGBTQ plus communities that were not getting programmatic advertising. They were too small, or they used keywords that advertisers were afraid of, like Black or gay. So advertisers who are using our inclusion list now are spreading their programmatic ad revenue to a lot of super high quality news sites that obviously desperately need the incremental revenue. Fascinating what you were saying about the about healthcare, and that that raises another question. What you were saying before about reading the truthfulness or the, the how factual something is, and even on on healthcare on the hoax, there are some things clearly a hoax. There are a lot of things that are clearly facts, but it feels like there's a gradient there. Like I, I there's a whole segment of holistic medicine. I think essential oils. I think some of the what people have been been saying for two years now during COVID about the use of zinc and vitamin D and other things that that are questionable, right? It's it's a little bit more of a gray area. How do you handle things like that, especially in very sensitive areas like healthcare? I'm looking at the language very carefully. So for example, if someone says, if someone were to say on the website, I've been you know, taking vitamin D and I feel great. Okay, well, you can't say that's false. There's nothing bad about that. Or in my opinion, vitamin D is terrific and a lot of doctors say it's great. That's one thing. On the other hand, if you quote a made-up you know, medical journal as saying that uh, colloidal silver will cure you know, rheumatoid arthritis, and there is no such medical journal, there is no such source, and no one has ever done a study that says that, then that's over the line. But we, we, we try to look with great precision at the language. 
our basic rule is if we can't really decide definitively that something is red, it's green. So everybody starts out green until proven red. We're not out to get anybody, but we are out in the case of these healthcare sites. The, the I mean, just the the numbers. Gordon says the number and the volume and the traffic they have is is stunning. That's the biggest surprise. We thought when we launched, it was mostly going to be about uh, political propaganda, made up political stories. Whether it was the election is going to be on Wednesday, not on Tuesday. Or you know something else, and yeah, there's a lot of that. But healthcare, what we realized, it's the money. These these sites are selling the phony, you know, cures that they're peddling, or as Gordon points out, they're getting huge amounts of programmatic advertising. Stephen, something you said before, using this metaphor of a library, and that you know, library is about including as many books as possible and having some transparency and some guidance, uh, as opposed to preventing or banning certain content in there. But it feels like we're having this debate as society right now. Like I think of, you know, as we're recording this, we, we've just seen a, a week of intense debate around Joe Rogan and Spotify and that conversation and people believing it should be taken down and other people saying, no, it's an open dialogue. And so I'm just kind of curious. I mean, again, from you all who, who are in this every single day, what is the best way of both fostering open dialogue and debate and having debate, thoughtful debate, but also mitigating some of the negative consequences of misinformation. The bedrock principle I would start with is the government needs to stay out of it. The, it's one thing for us to debate the editorial decisions that Spotify makes. And that's the second point, which is it is an editorial decision. You know, Spotify is deciding that it wants to pay Joe Rogan. And there can be consumers who who, who say that's outrageous. I'm not going to you know, use or, or buy anything from Spotify anymore. That's fine. And there could be consumers who say, that's a great thing. Now, if I'm the editor of Spotify, and I use that word advisedly because I think what they're doing is editing, I might choose not to carry a podcast that has what I consider to be disinformation about vaccines. But that should be my choice, not the government's choice. Spotify is one category, but of course, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, and others have completely secret black boxes. In the case of Spotify, as Steve says, they're making judgments. They're writing checks to license content. Wait, Gordon, when you say a secret black box, what do you mean by that? Unpack that a little bit more. So Facebook and the other platforms will... Uh, in the case of certain brands, certain accounts, will suppress the number of people who see the content. They don't disclose how they decide. Occasionally, when they're under public pressure over one particular situation or another, and it'll become public what they've done. But in almost all cases, actually, that's being done through secret algorithms all the time. And of course, the, their level of trust in the editorial judgment of the digital platforms is low, as it should be. They operate in secret. There's no transparency, no disclosure. As Steve said earlier, if a news publisher wants to find out how his brand is rated on those platforms, 
doesn't know who to ask. And if you could find who to ask, they wouldn't tell them because they would say, it would just game our system. I mean, this partnership you have with Microsoft where they're embedding your ratings into their... I mean, it seems like there's like opportunities for other platforms or other tech companies, like I think Substack. How do you sort of see the opportunities of integrating these ratings in with other technology platforms and products? Our goal is that everybody should have access to more information about the sources of news, however they're getting it. They're getting it on the open web. They're getting it in a search result. They're getting it through a Facebook app. They think the crazy Uncle Willie is something uh, has shared a story in the family Facebook group. They should be able to share information about that source with Uncle Willie. Um, And so our mission is to work with as many platforms as we possibly can so that they can empower their consumers with tools to make them better able to judge the reliability of the sources. There's a phrase, um, middleware solutions, which political scientist Francis Fukuyama and his group at Stanford have introduced to this debate. What they've said is, you know, breaking up the platform's maybe is justifiable based on your view of antitrust. But so long as they're using the same algorithms, it may not matter if it's one company or two or 20. It's the same algorithm that's maximizing ad revenue by maximizing engagement, regardless of the trustworthiness of the source or or of the content. So this concept of a middleware solution could be part of a regulatory solution to the Section 230 immunity that the platforms enjoy, where they could be forced to earn that immunity by taking some minimal steps to protect their users from known online harms. And one of those could be using uh, middleware solutions uh, like ours to give their consumers some choice about how they engage with the platform. So it's early days in terms of solutions to this problem. And the US is kind of on a different path. And it looks like the UK and Europe are on where they're much more advanced in making that reform essentially to our section 230 by telling the platforms, you know, you've got to take reasonable steps to avoid known harms on your platform, whether it's misinformation or bullying or abuse of one kind or another. The UK is very close to passing online safety legislation. The European Commission has a code of practice on disinformation that it looks like the platforms will sign on to. We'll see if they uh, perform against the requirements. It's it's early days. And, and so far as we can tell with all the data that we've seen, the most effective step that can be taken is to empower news consumers with some information about the sources they see. They naturally will rely more on trustworthy sources and will be much less likely to believe or share crazy conspiracy theories if they see that that source also published examples of other crazy conspiracy theories. I mean, one last question. You're already talking about the policy response, but I mean, what other advice would you have to policymakers as they're they're wrestling with this debate and this tension around countering misinformation? Sometimes that's state-sponsored misinformation. Sometimes that you know it's just an, arguably a debate. But this is happening in Congress. It's also happening in state houses as well. So, what advice would you have for policymakers as they're thinking about 
in a general matter, give give people tools so that they're better informed to make their own decisions. But just the the notion of the government, you know, jumping into you know content regulation is is just it's, it's not going to work. They're not going to be good at it. But it's just antithetical to to you know to everything. I think we all should believe in. And the other piece of it is there's some legislation around regulating the algorithms. Well, I wonder how anyone in the government is going to figure out how to regulate an algorithm. I think another way of looking at this is it's not surprising that 25 years into the internet, we're facing these problems. 25 years ago, we decided as a country to immunize the platforms from liability. And we did that at the beginning of the internet for good reasons. I was a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. I supported this. We didn't know what level of liability the platform should have, what harms might be caused. And so if you think about companies like Facebook, they were born into a regime in which they were immune. It shouldn't be surprising that if we have a giant exception for the common law for one particular industry, that that industry will grow up to be irresponsible. They're not going to be held accountable under the law. It's not surprising that they behave in an irresponsible way. So I think looking back on those 25 years, we can now see some known harms. We see great benefits, of course, from the digital platforms, but we also see known harms. And what we're seeing led by the UK is a move to reestablish the common law to say that just like a shipping company or a oil drilling company, you're going to be held accountable for the reasonably foreseeable harms that are being caused. Then the question is, what steps can be taken to minimize the harm? And in the area of misinformation, the simplest step that they could take would be to give their users some tools to be able to tell the difference between a perpetrator of crazy conspiracies and a more credible source of information. Yeah, it strikes me. I mean, even your language of talking about labels, this is very similar to how a lot of policymakers wrestle with junk food, right? You can't always prevent junk food from being sold at grocery stores. You can't even prevent people from wanting junk food, but you can hopefully make them more informed about what's in junk food versus healthier food, organic, non-organic, like all the, and you're giving an element of transparency that empowers people to help make decisions hopefully that are that are right for them. And that's a that's a very much of a third way then that's not the present in a lot of the debates I've seen. Yeah, that's a perfect analogy. And in fact, we call our detailed write-ups about each of these news and information websites, we call those write-ups nutrition labels. You know, so it's not quite here's how many calories are in a tablespoon of peanut butter, but it is, is this a generally trustworthy site or should you proceed with caution? Well Gordon, Stephen, thank you so much. I mean, I know things are so busy with you all and taking time to just share. And congrats. Congrats on the partnership with AFT and just all the work that you're doing, especially at this important moment with misinformation and all the challenges with COVID. So thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. John, thank you very much for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tech Enabled. And special thanks to Matthew Glavish and the AI's communications and digital strategy teams for their help in producing this episode. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. And while you're there, leave us a review. It helps others to find the show, and we always benefit from your feedback. We'll see you on the next episode.